Well, good morning, church. <laughs> uh, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy and your peace. And please help us to hear your truth today. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so uh, this is part of worship too. Okay, and uh, I feel like we sang our worship and uh, Liz sang the sermon too. So we all sang it. <laughs> So, um, you guys remember last week, uh, we looked at chapters 1 and 2 of Ecclesiastes. You guys remember that part? Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Yes. And uh, do you remember we talked about how our English translations uh, use the word meaningless, or sometimes vanity. And, um, but the Hebrew word is hevel. Y'all remember hevel? And it means vapor or breath or smoke. And it's a metaphor for the ephemeral quality of the human condition. So instead of meaningless, meaningless, we changed it to uh, vapor, a breath, says the teacher. Utterly fragile, everything is temporary. And instead of the teacher sounding like life is pointless or hopeless, right, we now have the teacher giving us a reality check on our humanity. And then in those first two chapters, he talks a lot about working, uh, toiling for wealth, and the fleeting quality of our wealth on this earth. And he pointed out that our hatred and despair of not getting to control our wealth after we die, well, that's Hevel. And our greed is felt by us while we're here on earth, and it leads us to despise other people. Right, and then we looked at uh, Luke 12, Jesus telling the parable of the rich fool, and he parallels a lot of what the teacher from Ecclesiastes said, you know, about working for wealth's sake, working for greed. And then we finished up with that awesome poem from chapter 1 that showed us the works of our hands, and they're hevel, they're fleeting, and the works of God's hands, which are lasting. And it showed us uh, what we can truly hope in, and it's not ourselves or what we make. And, uh, you know, it took me like 20 minutes to preach that sermon and only two minutes to recap it, so. <laughs> Do you feel ripped off? I don't know. <laughs> so uh, let's see what chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes uh, has for us, okay? Starting at verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away. A time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak. A time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. 
So that's a pretty familiar poem to most of us, right? If you're a Pete Seeger fan or a The Birds fan. And I feel like that was probably in Forrest Gump, right? Like every 60s song was in Forrest Gump, so you've probably heard it there too. And uh, that poem, it's seven paired lines, right? And they talk about human experiences. And the teacher doesn't frame these experiences as choices. Okay, he's saying that these things all have their time and place. And um, these life experiences are, are often not things that we get to control. All right, who here got to pick when they were born? Exactly none of us. <laughs> And uh, one quick thing to mention about this poem is these aren't commandments. This poem isn't permission from God for you to hate or start wars and kill folks. They're not permissions at all. He's pointing out seasons and patterns of life. And notice that he doesn't say a time to be righteous and a time to be wicked. Because those aren't patterns. Righteousness and wickedness are choices that our hearts get to make. Okay, those are on us. And I think something else that we miss when we read this poem is how social, how communal it is. Because we're such an individualized culture. So we read these lines and we apply them to just ourselves. But most of the experiences in this list only happen when we have relationship good or bad, relationship with other people. And there are many experiences here uh, dealing with loss. Okay, verse 4, uh, there's weeping and mourning. And verse 6, there's a time to stop searching. Right, it's a time to accept loss. And uh, verse 7, a time to tear garments. Remember, in their culture, they would tear their clothes to express mourning. So half of this poem is about loss. And, um, and the rest is about other social things, you know, like love and economy, right? Planting and gathering. These are all community experiences. And I, I think we miss that when we read it. And, um, you know, another thing that's really easy to misunderstand in reading these paired-up experiences is we consider them to be opposites, right? Weeping as the opposite of laughing and planting a field as the opposite of uprooting a field. So we read this poem as a list of opposites, and we think that uh, maybe the teacher's telling us that these moments cancel each other out. Right, and that our life is therefore meaningless. And the truth is, he's already told us at the beginning of chapter one that everything under the sun is Hevel. Okay, but these experiences, they're not opposites, okay? They're the whole complete experience. You can't uproot what hasn't been planted. You can't scatter what hasn't been gathered. So these contrasting experiences, they complete each other in these seasons and patterns. So let's read a little bit more here. Uh, verse 9. 
what gain has the worker from his toil? Uh oh, <laughs> he's back on work and toil. One of his favorite subjects. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it. So the people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. So, our human experiences have seasons that we can't control. And again, the toil of our work is brought up, you know. And in the previous chapters, it was about, like, what we worked for. And here he points to God. God determines our work. Or uh, the business to be busy with, as he puts it. The teacher is sharing with us the wisdom of knowing that there are patterns and seasons to the essential parts of our lives. And trying to control them or avoid them, well, that is hevel, because we're not the one in control. We're not the one with the power. God is. Yeah. So what can we do? I don't know. We can trust God to make things in our life beautiful. Wasn't that a verse? Is killing beautiful? Is war beautiful? No. And we cannot make it beautiful. But we know that God can take the difficult and terrible parts of our lives, and he can bring them to peace in its time. We don't get to control that, uh, but we do get to choose to believe that. And, you know, we see it at the end of Genesis, after Joseph is rejected by his brothers, and then he's kidnapped and sold into slavery into Egypt, and he's falsely accused of rape, and he's sent to prison for years. Then things start to turn, you know, and he gets to run Egypt, basically. But he's still a foreigner, and he's still a slave. An important one. But he's still separated from his family for years. And at the very end, when he gets to reconcile with his brothers, the ones who hated his guts, what does he say to them? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. And how was he so gracious? I think he lived long enough, and he looked at the pattern of his life and saw that God had made everything beautiful in its time. And God's work is beautiful because it is complete, and it's lasting, 
and we can't add to it or subtract from it. So what is the teacher's point here? Like, what are we supposed to do with all of this? In verse 12, he says, there's nothing better for us than to do good work and enjoy the parts of our lives that we can, right? Enjoy what we work for when we can. Enjoy our meals. I don't know about you, I enjoy my first cup of coffee in the morning. And I don't know if that's just because I'm enjoying it or if I'm addicted to it. I'm not sure. Because if I have a second cup of coffee, it's not as good. <laughs> but I really enjoy that first cup. Now, is joy or enjoyment, is that a permanent state of being? No, it has patterns too, right? And when they come around, enjoy them because that is God's gift to you. And the teacher, he reiterates this to us again in the next part. But he humbles us pretty good first. At verse 16, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. And the teacher acknowledges that here on earth, wickedness and injustice, well, they exist. And there are seasons when you can't even tell that there's righteousness, okay? There's no balance, okay? It's just all wicked. But it's not hopeless. It might be heaven, but it's not hopeless. Because there's a time and season when God will judge all right? The righteous and the wicked, all will be judged. And God's justice, like his works, it lasts. And do you suppose that his justice is part of his divinity that makes everything beautiful in its time? Justice is beautiful because within righteous justice, we acknowledge each other as creatures of God. One of my favorite Old Testament scholars, her name is Ellen Davis, uh, and she says this about justice. Doing justice is fundamentally a matter of observing with care what God has done in creation. It means respecting the needs and the dignity of each of my fellow creatures, acknowledging that we are more similar than different, for we depend on our existence entirely on God's gracious acts of creation and preservation. That's a beautiful way to look at justice. And uh, I think that quote uh, really helped me swallow the next part because honestly it's a little hard to take. Verse 18 I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is hevel. All go to one place, all are from the dust, 
and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? And that's quite a humbling passage because he tackles injustice and mortality in seven verses. It's unrelenting. And he compares us to animals. I think part of the reason that this passage is tough for us Christians to take is that the teacher has a very Jewish attitude about the afterlife. You know, he's like, who knows? Who knows if human spirits are better than animal spirits? You can't ask a dead animal. You can't ask a dead human, right? The Jewish people have such a healthy way of handling mystery. And Christians, you know, modern Western Christians, especially every single one that I know, we don't. We don't handle mystery very well. I don't. We pick it apart and we comfort ourselves by making things up about the afterlife. But not the teacher. He just asks, who knows? He shrugs and moves on. A hevel and a shrug. It's going to be the name of my memoir. <laughs> and he really gets our attention by pointing out our similarity to animals, right? And it feels like we're being downgraded. I have to admit, I was like, oh, this is a downgrade. But it's not. God is testing humans to see if we can be humble. And he points out that we are not physically eternal. We die. Just like animals. And he quotes uh, Genesis 3, right? All are from dust, and to dust all return. We are just as temporary and fragile as the animals. And that is the way that God designed us. From dust, from breath. And no amount of us building ourselves up can save us from mortality. So, to pass God's test, stay humble. Enjoy your good work. Enjoy your food and drink. Enjoy the seasons and patterns of life that you can. And this isn't settling, okay? And this isn't hopeless. It's a reality check on our humanity. And it's placing our faith and hope in God who makes things beautiful and who holds justice and eternity. So let's look at our gospel reading for today, okay? Because it echoes a lot of what the teacher's saying. Uh, but since it's Jesus talking, there's like even more hope. So it comes from Luke 12. Uh, we're still in Luke 12. And verses 22 through 31, they're really familiar verses to us. It's um, where Jesus is telling the disciples, like, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will wear. For life is more than food and clothes, right? And he says, you know, think of the birds. They're not farmers, but God feeds them. And think of the flowers. They don't make clothes, right? It's God who makes them beautiful. And in verse 29, Jesus says, Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Don't worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all these things, and your Father knows that you need them. 
but seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. And in that passage, Jesus is comparing his disciples to animals, but not by their mortality, but in how God will provide for them. He shows them how God provides for nature, right? So how much more will he provide for you? He says, do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Don't even worry about it. And the teacher in Ecclesiastes tells us to enjoy our food and drink, right? What we work for. And now Jesus is like, look, I have good news. You don't have to worry about how you're going to get your food and drink. But what you need to notice when Jesus talks to his disciples, every time he tells them, like, don't be afraid or don't worry, he always follows it up with something they should do instead. It's always much harder. <laughs> he says, don't set your heart on food and drink. Don't worry about your essentials. God will provide them. But what does he tell them to do instead? In verse 31, he says, but seek his kingdom. What? Seek his kingdom and these will be given to you. So see if you notice that pattern in the next part here in verse 32. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. <laughs> Look at, he calls them little flock. Right? He's just told them that they're more valuable than animals, and then he calls them animals, like as a term of endearment. And he tells them to seek the Father's kingdom, and he says, don't be afraid, the Father's already given it to you. And I was like, oh, off the hook. But he follows up, uh, don't be afraid, with another command. Sell your stuff and give to the poor, and prepare yourselves to carry heavenly treasure within you. Don't be afraid. Sell all your stuff. Like, we weren't afraid until you told us to sell our stuff and give to the poor and then count on some kind of invisible heart treasure. There's a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to scatter and a time to gather, a time to keep and a time to cast away. Jesus tells them, like, it's time to give up your stuff because it's time to do kingdom stuff a hard call to answer. I'm glad he doesn't ask us to do that. Everyone in the Bonhoeffer class right now is like, that's all he asks us to do all the time. <laughs> Jesus continues in verse 35. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for these servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve and will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. Look at that. That's the old master-servant switcheroo, right? It sounds like the gospel of God's kingdom to me. In verse 38, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or towards daybreak. 
But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. There's a lot of hope in these verses. He tells the disciples it's time for them to be watchful and to wait faithfully because the Son of Man will come at an unexpected hour. But he's coming. He's not going to leave them in the lurch. Those verses are always a mystery to me. When I think of Jesus returning, you know, sometimes I wonder, this is just confession time, okay? I wonder, like, if he returned, if I'm still alive, like, um, will I know? It, it, it's, a, it's a silly panic thought. Will I recognize the return of the King of Kings? But this time when I read it, I thought about that confusing verse in chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes where the teacher says in verse 11, He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. That's a mystery. But God has put eternity into our hearts. I'm not going to pretend to know what that means. But I figure eternity will recognize eternity when it sees it. And the teacher says that we humans can't fathom God from start to finish. And we just have to accept that mystery. And it's the same with Jesus. He says he will return at an unexpected hour. We have eternity in our hearts, but no clue when it's coming back. Jesus tells us to wait well. Live the kingdom life while we live in these patterns and seasons of human experiences. And we don't do this alone. We don't do this by ourselves. We do it. We live this out in community with each other. And this is God's gift to man. Amen.